Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and we're going to have a wonderful hour. I'm so looking forward to getting uh, A.J. Swoboda back on the program. He's written a new book called After Doubt, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. Now, there's been plenty of people, especially younger people now, that really struggle and wrestle with their core Christian beliefs. And too often, it starts off as some questions, then it turns into if they don't get answered, maybe resentment, maybe even faith abandonment. And we're wondering what the church has done to take on that task of serving people who maybe are on that journey of of questioning their faith. And we're here to uh, discuss that today. A.J. Swoboda is an assistant professor of Bible theology and world Christianity at Bushnell University in Eugene, Oregon. And he's got quite a long resume. He happens to be an extremely interesting guest. I hope I didn't just jinx it for you, AJ. Hilarious. Bill, it is great to hear your voice again. <laughs> it's been too long. I didn't jinx it, did I? Talk no, to I'm, not, I'm, I'm unjinxable. Okay, good, good. Uh, so this is a really big topic because there's so many people that are getting questions and they're not getting them answered and then they're wandering off and, and they're even feeling resentment. What is the what, what are we doing? What's the church doing and Help us deconstruct all this. Yeah, well, I mean, the the premise of the book, the, the big idea of the book is, um, you know, the, the title is After Doubt. The subtitle is really critical, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. The, the kind of premise of this book is that uh, for the last 22 years or so, I've been serving the sort of spiritual journeys of people in transition, primarily college students, both as a uh, college pastor, as a church planter, uh, now as a university professor, um, that in those moments of transition in our life where we are questioning our faith or going through a major life transition, often um, we don't know how to handle that. And you ask the question, what can the church do? Um, we need to begin uh, by begin. We need to begin by creating space uh, in our churches for people with really big questions. And the story of the Bible tells the story of one such guy. Uh, his name is Doubting Thomas, uh, who was made, there was room, room was made for him, and he eventually became one of the greatest missionaries in the history of the church. So the big idea here is that questions uh, should not lead to us walking away from our faith. Sometimes questions actually help us have a deeper faith. Mm-hmm. In chapter two of your book, you talk about the theological journey, and this uh, chapter really sketches the process by which we form beliefs about God. And sometimes that those beliefs take a lifetime, don't they? Yeah, no. I mean, none of us come out of the womb uh, with all of our thoughts about God uh, ironed out. Uh, I, I, I've often said that the only thing original about me is my sin. Uh, and, <laughs> and most of the stuff that I have, I got from someone else. Um, the, the pursuit of Jesus and the pursuit of learning about Jesus takes a lifetime. Uh, it doesn't happen overnight. And that process requires what we all are, are all going to go through it. Um, but the question is, how are we going to go through it? And in the book, I outline what I believe to be some really core practices uh, for how we learn about God, 
uh, over a lifetime. And these include things like being a part of a community that's following Jesus together, um, knowing yourself and, and knowing your personality is a really important part of knowing God. Um, things like repenting, uh, recognizing you've been wrong, uh, a willingness to be corrected. These are critical aspects, but you're absolutely right. It takes a lifetime and it doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. How are theologic, theological beliefs intentionally formed? Yeah. Well, um, we all make decisions about our life. And, you know, I this morning got up and decided to wear my blue button-up uh, shirt that I, it's one of my favorite shirts. I'm wearing my favorite shirt. jeans today. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's a great shirt. That's my a great favorite shirt. shoes. <laughs> These were all intentional choices. I didn't have my clothes lined out for me as I woke up. Um, and the same is true for um, our convictions and our beliefs. And we all make uh, decisions about um, the things that mean the most to us, our our, our values. Um, but the truth is, theologically, we make theological decisions all the time as well. And as we have seen and can see in our world, um, certain uh, theological uh, decisions can lead to really harmful, damaging stuff. Um, and decisions that are you know, healthy and good theological decisions lead to life and, um, and maturity and character. Um, so we don't make accidentally, we don't accidentally make decisions. And I do believe that the way of Jesus is the way and that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. And in a world of plurality where you've got so many different options, maybe too many options, it is refreshing to not have to make um, – it, it is refreshing to have somebody to lean your conscience and your decisions on. Um, and so, yeah, that process of making theological decisions is one that impacts not only us but those around us. Mm-hmm. AJ, I'd love for you to – Talk about uh, following Jesus through the the deconstruction and the doubt. I I love this quote that you have by Dallas Willard. Every single thing that Jesus taught us to do was something he had put into daily practice in circumstances just like ours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So the the deconstruction experience, which I'm going to guess many of your listeners have heard that word deconstruction, it, it basically is in the realm of philosophy or theology, in particular in theology in the church, it's 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 a moment in time when we begin to question something we previously believed or dismantle. We do away with, you know, for a lot of Christians, um, we don't, maybe for a lot of us, we don't give a lot of thought to what we believe, um, which is a travesty because what we believe really does uh, matter. There was a philosopher years ago who said, you know, beliefs are a lot like the pipes in our house. Um, You don't usually just sit around and think about the pipes in your house, but when you're, when your kitchen starts flooding, you really quickly start thinking about the pipes in your house. <laughs> mm-hmm. We don't often think a lot about our beliefs, but when they stop working, we, we generally do stop th- start thinking about them. And deconstruction is a very scary moment in mo- many of our lives when we begin to revisit some of the beliefs that we've had in the past. And I would say that actually that process of, of, of thinking critically about what we believe is a really Christian activity. In fact, the word repent in the New Testament is the word metanoia. It literally means to change your mind. And I think the idea, one of the core convictions of a Christian is that we take our ideas so seriously that we're willing to test them. I mean, we have a whole book, First John, that's about discernment. It's about testing our ideas. We don't just believe things. We believe them after we've tested them. So in, in a way, uh, I, I think that that process of deconstruction can actually be a really healthy thing as long as it's done in the pursuit of trying to follow Jesus. Mm. Well said, AJ. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. 
Let's uh, talk about chapter six, where you say, "Where you want?" You talk about feeling everything. I, I'm I'm curious as to what you mm. mean by that. I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to read that chapter, but please explain. No, 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 no. Well, yeah, there's 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 this um, you know, this sense um, among a lot of people that I know. You know, I serve at a university. A lot of young people uh, are raised in Christian environments where feelings and emotions are not an important part of the faith tradition. It's all head. And as a result, often when they go to college, they're allowed to feel and start expressing their emotions and they're heard and affirmed for their emotions. And often that can actually pull people away from their family of origin or from their tradition that they were raised. But when we read the Bible, we discover uh, how this vast array, this vast diversity of emotions. Um, for example, you have the the imprecatory, the imprecatory psalms, which are psalms of rage in the in the Psalter. You have praise psalms. You have laments. I mean, all of the emotions are captured uh, in the in the psalms themselves. Uh, Ellen Davis, who's at Duke University, says that the psalms are our First Amendment uh, in the before God. That there are free speech for the living God, and they include all of these emotions. Well, when we don't know how to feel our emotions. Uh, often, it, particularly when it when it when it relates to our faith, we start thinking that God doesn't care about our emotions. When in reality, God really cares about our emotions, and we are called to be emotional people. We're called to be not erratic people, but we are called to have emotions. We are created in the image of God. God has emotions, and we're supposed to have emotions too. Part of deconstruction for a lot of people is that they were never given a chance to feel. And I would argue. We need to increasingly teach people how to follow Jesus emotionally because our emotions are a really big part of our lives. That's so interesting. There's going to be a lot of uh, people that will rejoice upon hearing this, and I I know some will push back. Uh, Fair? That's a little bit of a controversial statement. Isn't it crazy? The simple statement that we were created in the image of God— and that we have emotions that were given to us by God, that that's controversial, that reveals a problem. <laughs> I agree. It says in your, in your book, our goal must be to receive all emotions as part of our journey toward Jesus. Emotions matter. Yep. Not just the really positive ones like joy and excitement and uh, grace and, and happiness. These are important. You as well have Jesus weeping over the death of his friend, Jesus getting angry and turning tables over, Jesus feeling such deep anxiety in the Garden of Gethsemane that he sweats blood. If Jesus was the true human and we are called to follow him, wouldn't it seem logical that we are called to follow him into the emotions that he had? Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that all of that does not mean that our anger brings about God's righteousness. Sometimes our anger leads to bad things, but that does not mean that we are not supposed to feel anger. You read the Psalms and tell me that anger is not a part of the pursuit of, of, of God. I mean, it is a legitimate part of our human experience. We should get angry. We should get angry at slavery. We should get angry at babies that are killed in the womb. We should get angry at racial injustice. These are important emotions to feel because God gets angry about them too. Mm -hmm. My guest is Dr. A.J. Swoboda. His book is called After Doubt, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. We'll take a little break. Be right back.
guest is Dr. A.J. Swoboda. He's written a book called After Doubt, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. A lot of people have had challenging questions in their life, and they've uh, turned it, turned out uh, to feel resentment, and sometimes they abandon their faith, which is horrifically sad. In Chapter 8, uh, A.J., you talk about practicing being wrong. I found that uh-huh. very provocative. You say the New Testament describes two different types of encounters with God, conversion and repentance. Conversion is turning to God in faith. Repentance, however, is turning back to God in faith through a changed mind and action. Pagans convert, Christians repent. Mm. Um, One of my favorite uh, questions to ask my new students when I have an undergraduate Bible class at the university I teach here at Bushnell University in Eugene is I will ask my students, when was the last time? It's one of my favorite questions to ask. I learn more about students from, from, from this question than just about anything. When was the last time you were wrong about God? And it's a it's an interesting question because if if you say you know I've never been wrong, uh, then clearly you you don't believe in God. You believe in yourself. <laughs> you believe in what you think about God more than anything else. Um, but when when somebody says you know I used to think uh, that God da da da, but now I think God da da da. Often that reveals that somebody actually sees somebody outside themselves that that they that they believe in. And that doesn't mean that they're right. But if we've never been wrong about God, then ultimately we are our own God. In the story of the Bible, um, we have the story of, you know, a Mark's gospel. And, and Mark, the interesting thing about Mark's gospel is he's not actually writing his own gospel. Um, he is writing down Peter's story. Mm-hmm. This is Peter's story of Jesus. And there is no gospel that is more honest about the downfalls of Peter than Mark. And Mark is writing it on Peter's story. Here's the connect the dots. Peter preached his gospel through his own failure. Um, the power of a Christian, we don't we do not preach the gospel through our own perfection. We don't preach the gospel through always being right. We preach the gospel through our willingness to recognize we've been wrong. And so much of the Christian story, which is about humility, humilitas, brokenness. Um, we, we preach best through our own failures. Um, I, I was joking, the only thing original about me is my sin. The truth is, I know myself really well. And I'm a fractured, broken, uh, self-centered, self-centered narcissist who is almost always just focused on himself. And I know that Jesus is calling me, calling me to something deeper. And I have a hunch that maybe a few of your listeners are the same. Uh, and that that one's recognition uh, that we are wrong is actually a recognition that there's somebody who is right, and that for a Christian is Jesus, not mm-hmm. ourselves. Yeah, wonderful. So let's talk. Let's turn to the practice of discernment, discerning the truth. How do we mm-hmm. How do we know what's true? Yeah, boy, that's a a really good question. I, I take a whole chapter to to talk about that uh, because you know when you're when you're a student. Um, who's been raised in the church, and you go off to university, and all of a sudden you've got some professor that's telling you the Bible is not trustworthy, and there is no God, and you do whatever you want to do. All of a sudden, we're all doing discernment at that moment. We're starting to figure (laughs) out, okay, what is true? What's not true? How do I know? And we're all doing that all the time. And in the Christian tradition, we have some really core concepts. Um, One of the core concepts that we have in the Bible, uh, that we have in the New Testament in particular, uh, is this concept of weighing 
certain concepts against what Scripture has to say. We see Jesus doing this. Uh, for example, in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is being tempted by the serpent, uh, the, the Satan figure, in, in the wilderness. And three times in that chapter, Jesus rejects what the serpent says, the Satan says, and says, it is written, and he quotes the book of Deuteronomy, and he quotes uh, these kind of core Old Testament passages for Jesus, for his model, is he weighed what the serpent said, what Satan said, versus what Scripture had to say. And that's a really important concept. If I have a student or somebody who comes to me and says, hey, I had a dream, and I, in my dream, God told me to do something absolutely horrible, go and kill somebody or do something violent, um, how do I know that's not God? Well, I can pull up in my Bible and show um, what Jesus says about peacemaking, and I can show that's not the way of God. God's word— God's voice in our hearts will never violate God's word. That's a really important concept that we have scripture. Another thing is community, our church community. Like, are we, are we open to the voices of those around us to help shape us? Or are we radically individualistic and do everything all on our own? There's a number of ways to discern, but luckily scripture gives us some pretty key, uh, key ways to think about it, things that we can hold on to. But one for sure that's really important is the role that scripture plays in our lives. Mm-hmm. To discern is to judge, to discriminate, to be willing to name what is true and what is not. The person yep. with the Spirit, Paul writes, makes judgments about all things. That's 1 Corinthians 2.15. Ooh, say more about that. Yeah, well, we're, we're living in this day and age where everything's about don't judge, don't judge, don't judge. And I think it's terrifying. <laughs> um, I do too. I, 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 think that, I think judgment is absolutely critical. Um. You know, the, the serpent's words in Genesis 3 are very telling. Uh, the first thing he says to the woman is he says, did God really say, you know, don't eat from this tree? Uh, and then the second sentence is he says to her, certainly you will not die if you eat from this tree. And D.A. Carson, who's a Trinity evangelical, uh, it says that the, the first doctrine that the serpent denies is the doctrine of judgment, um, that, that there is going to be a judgment. Uh, you'll die if you eat from this tree. And the serpent's first denial is the doctrine of, of judgment. Um, I mean, that's the whisper of our age. You do you. Do what you want. Do, do what feels right. No judgment. Do it. Um, and you can say that and feel like you're all high and mighty for extending freedom for people to do what they want. But when you have to sit in the room as a pastor with somebody who's got to walk through horrific decisions because of uh, a weekend without boundaries, um, it's another story. Or when you're a parent, you, you see the detrimental effects uh, of drug use on, on one's grades or life or relationships. You begin to realize that actually that kind of freedom uh, is quite oppressive, quite oppressive. It's an oppressive freedom. So the point is, I think judgment's really healthy. And God calls us to be people who know how to discern and judge rightly. AJ, talk a little bit about uh, false prophets. It seems like there's uh, always, they've always been around, but it seems like nowadays we have access to more of them because of the internet. Yeah, yeah there's not more. They just have Twitter feeds now. Yeah, exa- so. <laughs> exactly. There's just there we can access them more easily. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's the that's the 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 the, the world we're living in. You know, we in in the Bible they built Babel with stones and bricks. Now we do it with URLs and websites. <laughs> um, and, and the scattering that's taking place as a result of um, of this environment is is sowing so many seeds in so many places. I mean, there there is going to be. I frankly think 
Bill, that the, the, the political landscape of our country right now is directly a result of, of what we're talking about here. Um, we, we, we allow, you know, who doesn't love free speech is a powerful thing and it's important and we should have the power to be able to speak uh, what we believe to be true. But the downside to free speech is a world where free, where false prophets are given Twitter accounts and given um, places of power in, in in very high places, and this is going to be this is going to be something we face for a long time because the internet is not going anywhere now. All the more important a time in history for Christians to know what Scripture says mm-hmm. and what it doesn't say. Um, and this idea is, by the way, doesn't mean that just because you're a Christian you're speaking truth. False prophets are usually people that do so in the name of Jesus. Right. And just because somebody says something in the name of Jesus doesn't mean they're right. We need something deeper than, well, they said it in the name of Jesus. Uh, yeah, that, that we have to go deeper than that. So we just have a couple of minutes left, AJ. Let's talk about reconstructing faith, especially for those listening who have a loved one or they themselves have uh, drifted away. Yeah. Well, um, the deconstruction process is difficult and hard and um, I think I personally believe it's a very, it can be a very sacred place where we encounter Jesus, but uh, it's probably not the best place to live for long term. I've, I've heard it said, you know, deconstruction is like Vegas. Um, it's a great <laughs> place to visit, but man, you never want to live there. Yeah. It, it's not a good place to land. Deconstruction, if you just live there forever, becomes basically a landscape of destruction and ashes. I think Jesus calls us deeper. And Jesus is really interested in, you know, it's, I, I love this, this image uh, uh, in Jeremiah when the exiles have, the, literally their homeland is deconstructed, their, the temple is deconstructed, and they're taken off to Babylon. And what does God tell the exiles to do when they're in Babylon? He says, build some gardens, uh, raise your kids, grow some food, uh, love your city, and be positive citizens. And what I love God doing is for a people who just deconstructed, had everything deconstructed for them, he tells them to start building something again. Okay. And he says, start start making society a better place. Grow some tomatoes. Grow some vegetables. Uh, love your kids well. Learn the Bible. Uh, for us, deconstruction is a difficult place, but there does come a point where God says, okay, you've asked some really good questions. Now let's start loving people. Now let's start investing in a community again. Now let's, let's start investing and spending time uh, on your face in prayer. There comes a point when you realize deacon, there comes a point when we all start deconstructing our deconstruction. Yeah. Good point. And, and we, and we start wanting to come home to the father. Amen. And that is a very sacred place. All right. You need to come back. It's way, way too much fun and not enough time. So please uh, let's do this again. Hey, thanks as always, Bill. Yep. Dr. A.J. Swoboda has been my guest. His book is called After Doubt, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. All right, we'll take a little break, then we'll come back. We've got Scott Hubbard in studio. Be right back. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. We all know that Christians worship a big God with a big mission that will one day reach the whole big world. Yet, for all of his bigness, our God has a remarkable love for the small. That's what we're going to talk about today with Scott Hubbard. He's a desiring 
uh, DesiringGod.org editor and a writer and a very gifted communicator. And he's with me today in the studio. Scott, welcome back. Thank you very much. Do you Good remember? Do you remember how much fun we had the last time? I do. Here? I Good. remember it very Good. clearly. Good. Then it was not just mind. me. Nope, not just either. you. You remembered enjoying it as well. <laughs> I do. I have uh, memory. All right. Now I'm fascinated with this idea because I was talking about this at the f- top of the uh, show about the 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 love for the small and how. So that's how I started my day. Hmm. So I'm turning it over to you. Here we go. Yeah. Yes. Our God has a remarkable love for the small, though he is so big. And it's really important that we keep both of those together. It can be easy to gravitate toward one or the other. And and we need to keep both. That's what we find repeatedly in God's Word. One of my favorite passages, books, that exemplifies this so clearly is the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. You know, chapters 1 to 3 offer this panoramic view of God's bigness, the bigness of the gospel of Christ, the bigness of the glory of God, his cosmic plans, that he has a mission that is not only stretching across the whole big world, but that is putting on a display for principalities and powers. So this is a, this is a cosmic thing, a universal thing. And then you see the turn in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3 into chapter 4, where Paul is now addressing the church. Okay, how do we live in light of this big cosmic God with a big plan? And it is surprising if you are paying attention. With all of that bigness in mind, he evidently has a remarkable love for the small because the most immediate action steps that Paul has relate to your workplace, relate to your home. What kind of, what kind of husband are you? What kind of wife are you? What kind of child are you? A parent are you? Mm-hmm. What kind of worker are you? Uh, how do you talk with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you, uh, do you sometimes lie? Uh, do your words give grace? You know, these, these are remarkably small things in the grand scheme of things anyway. You know, you dig down into applying those things and it's going to get down to the nitty gritty way of how do you spend your time? What are your relationships like? And so he is big, Ephesians 1 to 3, and he has a remarkable love for the small, Ephesians 4 to 6. And you see that pattern played out all through the scriptures. Mm-hmm. You keep saying why stuff like this and I'll have you back on the show again. You'll be, <laughs> you'll be sorry. Uh, well, maybe at some point. Not yet, though. Yeah. So is it uh, the prophet Zechariah that says, do not despise the day of small things? Yeah. And that's actually, you know, that that phrase, do not despise the day of small things. Uh, I've, I've heard that uh, lots of places before. It's not exactly the quote from Zechariah. Mm-hmm. He says, whoever has despe- despised the day of small things shall rejoice in okay. Zechariah 4.10. But it's more or less the idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd love for you to say more about that. Sure. So the context is the Old Testament people of God, Israel. Okay. They've been in exile, and they are back now in the land. So they've gone away to Babylon. They're back in the land. And some of these people remember what it was like to be in the land, and in particular, what it was like to have Solomon's temple. You see Solomon's temple in earlier parts of the Old Testament, it is this magnificent, majestic structure. And now the people are tasked to go rebuild this temple, restore it to its former glory. That's what the people are hoping for, understandably. God's given them really big promises through the prophets Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, others about what he is going to do for his people. But once this temple gets built, 
under the leadership of Zerubbabel, many of the people who remember the old one, they weep because this temple is small. And that's the context for Zechariah's words. Whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. So he's looking at Israel. He's saying, yes, you remember the day when you had a magnificent temple and you're listening now to promises that the glory of Israel is going to be even greater than it was before. And right now you are stuck in a day of small things. You see a temple that looks like a little stump compared to what it was. (laughs) And do not despise that day, though you feel stuck there right now. So that's the context of Zechariah's words in chapter four. You say in your article, the big God is apparently patient enough to endure centuries of small days. Yeah. It's easy to read through the Bible or even to just think of the biblical storyline and to, in our own minds anyway, compress the work of centuries into a much smaller time. But if you think about what this would have been like on the ground. <laughs> it's remarkable, given the mission that God has, given the promises that he gives, that he, he is apparently content to endure centuries of small things, centuries of small days. And not only then, but now we live here. We live on the other side of the Great Commission, mm-hmm. the other side of the cross and the resurrection. Man, those are big things. Go make disciples of all the world teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. What a big mission. And yet 2,000 years of church history have told us the same lesson, that God is apparently content to wait through centuries of small days. Oh, he is bringing his mission across this whole world, but it happens in part through a day of small things. Mm -hmm. You say pray for revival and then prepare breakfast for the kids. Yeah, that's right. So that's an attempt at trying to capture both. It is. It's a beautiful job. It's a great illustration. Yeah, and one illustration that I have consistently in my own mind, it's not here in the article, but uh, you may have heard and listeners may have heard the this little parable about three stonemasons who are working on a cathedral. And an observer comes up, sees what they're doing, asks the first one, what are you doing? And the first one just says, I'm laying stone. Goes up to the second one, says, what are you doing? He says, I'm building a wall. And then he goes up to the third one who has a joyful face. And he says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm building a cathedral. <laughs> Every one of them is doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. They're putting one ordinary, stubborn stone on top of another. That's a small thing. But one of them has a vision of what this is going to be, that it's a really big thing. And so, yes, have both the big and the small mind. The big gives the small meaning meaning, and keeps us going in the day of small things. And the day of small things is the only way that the cathedral is going to be built. So both are so necessary. Yeah. So when you treat everything you do as a act of worship to God, mm-hmm. I would say the person with the vision that's building the cathedral is probably more fulfilled, more no joyful, no and doubt. feels more purposeful because you can really bring dignity to anything you do. You really can, and this has been an insight throughout church history that people have held on to, but the Reformers did a lot to bring that back into the lived experience of everyday people. There was somewhat of a dichotomy at that time between kind of normal, ordinary life, ordinary jobs of being a 
mother and a father, a cobbler and a farmer, and then the more sacred vocations of being a priest. And the Reformation went a long way toward collapsing that distinction and saying that no matter what you do, if you're mending shoes, if you are plowing a field, if you are changing a diaper, it can be an act of sacred worship Mm -hmm. when it is done in faith. So when you do a small thing in faith, then the big God takes notice mm-hmm. and considers it not a small thing, but a big thing. In his yeah. yeah. I mean, everyday activities, sometimes I'll think at the end of the day, I had a glorious, wonderful, boring day <laughs> <laughs> where it wasn't anything, yeah. you know, dr- dr- dramatic that happened. It was just yeah. going about my day, doing what God has given me to do that day mm-hmm. and having kind of a nice, typical day. Yeah. That's, that's a right. happy. That's a happy place to be. It is a happy place to be, especially if you can keep in mind that, so on the one hand, there, are, there really are enjoyable things on days like that, like little moments of just pleasures that pass and are gone, and you take them in, and in Ecclesiastes kind of fashion, you, yeah. you, give, you, you give thanks to God for them and you enjoy them. But all the better, too, if you can remember that on this wonderful, glorious, boring day, <laughs> some, something, something big is happening, and exactly. it's building up to something grand, just like... It, the days are often going to be wonderful, glorious, and boring if you're building something like a mm-hmm. cathedral. It's going to be one stone on top of another, on top of another, on top of another, but one day it's going to be something mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. Scott, well, let's talk about the disciples. They needed, you say that they needed their ideas of big and small, redefined time and again. Say more about that. Yeah. So talking the article just about how there are a couple of ways we can go wrong when we think about big things and small things. And one of them is that we can expect the day of big things to be here now. And we've talked about that a little bit already, that often God is pleased to keep us in the day of small things for much longer than we would desire. And yet, on the other hand, another way we can go wrong is by allowing the world to define for us what the day of big things really is, what, what big really means in the sight of God, in other words. And the disciples did need help with this. Now, more than once. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a good thing for people like us who are like the disciples that the Gospels include this, that you know, more than once we find them embroiled in an argument about which one of them is the greatest. And more than once, Jesus needs to redefine <laughs> greatness for them, that the greatest among you is the one who serves. And so a very uh, small thing like service is now all of a sudden shown to be a very big thing, that th- this, is, this is what it means to be great. And that's just laced through all the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Jesus is teaching this lesson to the disciples again and again and again. Don't despise those little children. Yeah, you think they're small. They're not a big deal in your culture, but they are a big deal to God. Yeah. Spend time with these little kids. To, that, to them, to such as these belongs the kingdom. And we could just go through dozens of examples. Scott, let's talk more about what is big in the eyes of our Lord. Well... I love to go to the Sermon on the Mount. Okay. It's a classic passage on Jesus calling for what life in the kingdom looks like. And you do find some big things in that passage, but more often you find things that seem at first glance to be small. So in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus wants to talk about the things that our Father in heaven has his eye on and will reward, 
He talks about going into your room and praying in secret. He talks about fasting in such a way that nobody knows. He talks about giving so that your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing. These are small things, you know? Just think about what you did this morning. Did you go into your room, you know, some room off where nobody knows where you are, nobody sees you, and pray to God? Your Father in heaven, Jesus says, will see and reward that when done in faith. Oh, what a small thing that feels like in the moment. We, we feel it to be small. It doesn't feel like an exciting thing very often anyway. Sometimes mm-hmm. God breaks through and we feel reality as we ought to. But very often things feel small and we need to be reminded again and again, your Father sees this. Don't let the world define what big means. I Listen love that. Him. I love that. Let me take a little break. Scott Hubbard is my guest. He is over at DesiringGod.org. You can check out his writing there. He's an editor there at DesiringGod.org. We'll be right back with lots more. my guest. He's over at DesiringGod.org. Scott, I've just got some nice text coming in. This is touching a chord with a lot of people. So as you talk about what is small among men is big in the sight of God, that's from Luke, isn't it? Luke sixteen fifteen. Yeah, and Luke is actually coming at it from the opposite angle, but we can infer that this applies as well. So in that chapter of Luke, Jesus actually says that uh, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Strong words. And that accords with a lot of other things he said, of course, that on the last day, many of those who are first will be last and the last first. So there's going to mm-hmm. be this great reversal. And the things that seemed so big here, that were treated as so big here, are all of a sudden going to look very small. And many small things will seem very big. Mm-hmm. You also talked about visiting forgotten people and forgotten places. That's out of Matthew twenty five thirty six. It is. And giving a cup of water to one of Jesus' little ones, Matthew ten forty two. These are all little things, but not small in God's eyes, is it? No. Yeah. And that first one, Matthew twenty five, that's Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats mm-hmm. in reference to the last judgment. Yep. And he looks to those on his right, to the sheep on his right, and the kinds of things he says, some of them would feel like big things to us in the sense that they would be inconvenient, they would shake up our lives, like uh, clothing the naked, for example. Like that's something that you you go home and tell <laughs> tell your family about <laughs> and other things too. But, but many of them are unseen. Uh, they're unapplauded. Mm-hmm. They happen in secret, going going to visit somebody in prison, yeah. uh, helping the sick. Those kinds of things, it's remarkable, isn't it, that when Jesus tells those people on his right, you did these things to me, 
they ask, when, when did this happen? You know, so it's not like they've had those things in their mind thinking, oh, yeah, these, are, these things are going to come up in the judgment. I'm going to be rewarded for these things. Many of these things were so small, they didn't expect anyone to remember them. Jesus himself has to remind the sheep that they did these things and to remind them that they were actually very big in his sight. Mm-hmm. How important is it that we allow God to define big for us? It's very important. Okay, I like because it. Because we more. are catechized, if you will, into... What does uh, that mean? Yeah, so I'm using it ironically. You know, a catechism is, uh, especially in past generations, past centuries, that's what parents and pastors would use to help teach their congregants and their children the fundamentals of the faith. So a kind of question and answer kind of thing. But you you catechize children, you catechize congregants up into the faith. And catechism or that kind of training of uh, being shaped into the fundamentals of something is not something we can avoid just because we don't go to church. It's something that we breathe into our culture. We are being catechized one way or the other, either by the truths of God's word or by the claims of a culture that is enamored with different ideas of what big and small is. So we can either let God and his word define for us what is big and what is small and live our lives by that metric, or we can live by what we find on the television, by what we find on social media, by what we find in our newspapers, by what our politicians and celebrities tell us, which is a very different idea of what big means. And so even perhaps our... uh, our families. This wasn't true for me, but I'm sure for many, the uh, many listeners grew up in families that had an idea of big for their vocation or for what kind of future they would have that was just not in sync, perhaps, with what God's idea of big is. Mm-hmm. A certain type of successful career or an expectation to make a certain amount of money, live a certain lifestyle. And we know that these things are uh, considered in themselves incredibly small in God's sight from the standpoint of eternity, far bigger to live a life of ordinary faithfulness to him, no matter how much money you make, no matter what your vocation is. Mm -hmm. You talk about as long as we are in the day of small things, then our job is to bear the spirit's fruit of faithfulness as we wait for God to bring the big things. And our job is to see by faith, all the big things right in front of us. So again, we're, we're, being reminded how important the small things are. That's right. And that's one way, thinking about the fruit of the Spirit, to even put a new angle on this whole conversation. It's easy to read the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, might be missing one or two. And to just have a vague idea of, yeah, these, these are good things, and not to really grapple with, okay, how does the Spirit work these things into us? And faithfulness, for example, is one fruit that is really hard to come by, hard to be trained in by the Spirit of God, unless you live in a day of small things, unless you live in a place that perhaps sometimes feels forgotten, unless you are given to tasks that feel mundane, ordinary, boring, even if glorious from the right point of view. That's how you become faithful, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's how faithfulness happens in a day of small things. And so, that's another just angle. What What is God doing in this day of small things? Well, one thing he's doing often is bearing the fruit of faithfulness into us, mm-hmm. which is something that will never perish. I've often thought when I see people with big ministries, 
my thought is I bet they were really faithful in the little things. And I hope so. And I hope so, because, too. Because uh, I think we, we can think of stories, too, where people were exalted to a place of big things without first having learned faithfulness in the small. And sometimes they learn in a baptism by fire in a place of big things now what it means to be faithful. Mm-hmm. And other times we know that there's a crash and a burn. And so I, I sure hope so too. And that's the pattern. Obviously, we see that in Scripture too, that before Moses led Israel out of Egypt, he was a shepherd in Midian for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And before David was a king, he was a shepherd. Uh, God, God seems to have a uh, preference for shepherds. And the uh, day of small things is very often the training ground for a day of bigger things. Jesus said he who's faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And it's hard to become ready for much without having first walked through little. Mm-hmm. Scott, talk up to listeners who are waiting for God to give some kind of growth in their life. Well, One thing I would say, along with the theme that we have been talking about so far, is not to think of growth in terms of where you will be one day, but where you are right now. So one helpful little phrase, this comes from C.S. Lewis, and it actually relates to prayer. He was talking about it in the context of prayer, but he said, begin where you are. So sometimes when we sit down or kneel down to pray, we can feel this pressure to be thinking of these great, glorious things to thank God for. And that's wonderful if we can get into that kind of spirit immediately. Lewis said, it can help sometimes just to begin where you are. Notice something in your room. Notice something that happened within the last hour and give him thanks for that. So don't try to start at a place where you aren't, but begin where you are. And that can go along with growth in the Christian life, too. So let's just say, you know, a, a young woman wants to become a missionary one day, and she wants to grow up to that. It can sometimes be tempting for a person like that to read the story of a missionary and to try to emulate the kinds of things that she sees in a mature missionary, like Amy Carmichael or somebody like that. And what you don't see there are the thousands of small days that Amy Carmichael walked through before that point where she was so mature. And instead of thinking, okay, I want to do exactly what she did right now, begin where you are. Mm -hmm. What's the, what's the next step? So don't, don't try to think of what Amy Carmichael would do. uh, (laughs) She's a missionary to India for, for anyone who's not familiar with her, but But think of what's the very next step that God is calling you to today. Maybe it's being more faithful to your your own small group. Maybe it is taking a risk in evangelism with a neighbor, something like that. That's maybe doesn't feel like a grand and glorious thing, not the kind of thing you want to be doing 10 years from now, but it is perhaps the only way to get to be doing what you want to be doing 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. And so take the next opportunity that's in front of you. Don't bypass it. Seize it. A lot of good wisdom, Scott. I think that we can all walk away tonight with the idea that one small step we can take is going to add to the add to the mix. That's right. Yep. Yeah. 
and God is watching everything we're doing. So that's a good reminder as well. Yeah, it is. He's, he's not waiting for us off no. in the future in the day of big things. He's right here in the day of small things. Our helper, our provider, our savior, our treasure. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming in. It's really interesting uh, to have you here and talk about small things. It was really a great way to start Monday. <laughs> yeah, glad to be here, yeah. Bill. Thank you. Scott Hubbard has been my guest. He's a graduate of Bethlehem College and Seminary, and he's an editor for DesiringGod.org. If you go to DesiringGod.org and type in his name, Scott Hubbard, all of his articles that he's written will pop right up. And the one that we talked about today is called Do Not Despise the Day of Small Things. Thanks for everyone who made this show so interesting. I appreciated all my guests. I hope you had a great day. I hope you have a good evening. And I am looking forward to spending time with you tomorrow. I will um, pray for you tonight as I lay my head on the pillow and just be reminded that God is working out a great plan in your life. Go do some small thing tonight. It'll make a big difference. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.